welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at femcoffeepod, or you can send us an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And today we have a very special guest. We're welcoming Assistant Professor of History at Florida State, Paul Renfro. And we're going to be talking about his book, Stranger Danger. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, this is almost like a, uh, I spoke to you about this before the show, like a part three in the way that we're talking about the way that fear about child kidnapping and trafficking is being happening in the United States. But it's almost like a rewind because your book focuses on the panic about this in the 70s and 80s. Can you tell us a little bit about why you chose this topic for your book? Yeah, so when I arrived at the University of Iowa to do my doctoral studies, um, I learned about uh, these cases of missing paper boys uh, that occurred or, you know, the kidnappings occurred in the early 1980s, early to mid-1980s, and I became really captivated uh, by these um, incidents, and I wanted to kind of excavate the the deeper history of missing children um, and you know, the Iowa paperboy kidnappings became one chapter in a dissertation that eventually became this book. Um, and, you know, one one real reason that I was kind of drawn to this story, uh, not just the, the Iowa paperboy story, but the, the larger story of missing children and the sorts of anxieties that, that provoked this panic in the 1980s, um, one reason that really kind of spoke to me was that I grew up kind of um, in the aftermath of, um, of many of these incidents um, in the wake of many of the mechanisms um, that, you know, cultural and legal and otherwise that were created to address this problem. Um, so, you know, I grew up with um, not so much milk cartons um, because that was a very short-lived phenomenon, but... Um, with this fear that perhaps I was going to get snatched next, uh, with this idea that I needed to be wary of, of all strangers, uh, that I needed to be, you know, uh, close to my mother, uh, essentially at all times in close proximity to her. Um, so, you know, that, that's one thing that really kind of, um, uh, drew me to this story and, and made me want to kind of excavate it and, and see how it fit within the larger, uh, political moment of, of the 1970s, 80s, and into the 90s, and even uh, to the present day, as, as your uh, question uh, alluded to, Elizabeth. Sure. And um, something that I've thought about, I've read a couple of books about the satanic panic, and they often talk about how that represented a lot of people's fears about women in the workforce and children in daycare. But uh, one of the themes of your book that you underscore is the way that some of these kidnappings have really, really drummed up a lot of homophobia. Even at the time, like that there was a panic after uh, the kidnapping of Eitan Pats. Can you talk a little bit about what actually happened? And then I have a follow-up question. Sure. Uh, so with the Eitan Pates case specifically, um, this occurred in 1979. And one of the early suspects um, in in the abduction, presumed abduction, because, you know, even though someone has been convicted of this crime, there are still lingering questions about exactly what happened. So one of the early suspects was NAMBLA, North American Man-Boy Love Association, uh, this very controversial organization that had this sort of tenuous tie to the larger LGBTQ movement. And what kind of prompted this suspicion um, among authorities, you know, what kind of drew them to NAMBLA was this picture of a boy 
um, it was a non-pornographic photo, but the the resemblance to to Aton, um, you know, and this was I should say kind of discovered during a raid that was perpetrated in. 1982, I believe, or late 1981, so sometime after the actual disappearance of Aton Pates. Um, but this idea that you know these photographs or this particular photograph was kind of uh, evidence of of Aton Pates's uh, abduction and kind of recruitment into this organization, which um, you know all evidence suggests has never kind of committed this sort of heinous act. You know, as questionable as some of their uh, beliefs and philosophies might be. Um, this kind of spoke to, I think, larger fears um, uh, that were kind of circulating at the time, you know, not unlike the, the sort of lines that you would hear from people like Anita Bryant or Jerry Falwell, who very much kind of operationalized this logic of uh, this very homophobic line of, of queer folks as recruiting, right, um, young people. And this is obviously something that you hear again and again today with fears about grooming and the like, right? Um, so NAMBLA, even though they were kind of clearly not, not involved in this, were implicated nevertheless. And this is a thread that uh, runs through many of these initial cases. Uh, there were suspicions about a pedophilic or pederast um, kind of involved in the, the Adam Walsh abduction and, and murder in 1981, the, the Iowa paperboy kidnappings, which I mentioned earlier, the Atlanta uh, disappearances and, and murders as well. Um, all of these kind of prompted suspicions of, of gay men, and none of these were really substantiated. I should also men mention uh, Kevin Collins, who disappeared in 1984 in San Francisco. And, you know, so these, I think, spoke to or reflected larger anxieties about the stability of the American family and the supposed threat that, that gay men particularly posed uh, to that family and the child at the heart of that family the, and the pronatalist project that that child kind of represented. I was reading your book at the end of June of this year in 2022, and it was, you know, the end of Pride Month, and it was the end of a time you know, that appeared to me just as a straight cis person, but there had been increasing attacks on the LGBT community this year, especially around events like Drag Queen Story Hour. Like I live in Queens, New York, and there was so much uh, demonization and so much homophobia and transphobia directed at these events. And it was it was frightening. Um, you know, we had a, a Republican city council member attack other, you know, gay city council members over this. And to be reading your book at that time just made me think like it's it's happening again. But the strange thing to me about it was this is all just based on QAnon. You know, in, in the 70s and 80s, there were children that were abducted and that were murdered. And right now we're drumming up all this panic over over nothing. Um, do you think that that parallel stands like it's similar to what's happening now? Yeah. And, you know, I I grapple with this a lot. And I think. I wonder if the the panics that I talk about in this book ever really ended, you know, did they ever really subside? And I don't think they did because we never really grappled with them and the products of these panics persist. They they live on whether it's kind of in this rhetoric that uh, that we see all around us, right? But but the links to this previous period are perhaps kind of obscured. So whether it's, you know, the the language of sex trafficking which is so omnipresent 
Um, and it's an issue that is so so misunderstood and human trafficking more broadly, so misunderstood and kind of um, misused in a sense, right? You know, that that clearly kind of resonates not only with what I write about in the book, you know, from the 70s and 80s, but, you know, these deeper tropes, right? Uh, these anti-Semitic tropes concerning kind of blood libel or um, this, this broader fear of recruitment that most certainly bubbled up in the 1970s and into the 80s. 80s, but you saw earlier as well uh, with the, the so-called sexual psychopath panic uh, in the 30s through the 60s or so uh, in the United States. Um, so, you know, these things go, um, have really deep roots. And so that's one kind of product, just the sort of rhetoric that you see, uh, but also, you know, whether it's Amber Alerts or um, you know, uh, billboards with, with missing children's photographs on them. All of these products and, and practices kind of serve to substantiate this myth that you're kind of talking about. And I, I don't mean myth in the sense that this never happens, meaning, you know, that, that children aren't um, abducted or kind of recruited for, for use in you know, these nefarious sorts of projects. Uh, but there's a lot of misunderstanding um, and a lot of misconceptions uh, related to these things. And there's little interest in really kind of interrogating uh, what causes child sexual harm. Um, and there's little kind of uh, ability or, or willingness to reckon with the fact that the, the regime, the sort of products and practices that we've constructed to address this threat don't work, you know, that because this thing, uh, this, this uh, threat, um, you know, is real and it and it does exist, um, but it's not something that we're kind of adequately addressing. Yes, there were so many um, current issues that your book ties into, even though it takes place in the events of past decades. And to me, one of the takeaway messages was was the way that people jumped on these horrific events to kind of expand the carceral state and to to demonize queer men and, and men of color and. I think that that's an aspect of this that we don't talk about that much. Like, you know, when you talk about decarceration or when you talk about, you know, satanic panic, we kind of don't tie them together, but they, they really are linked. And I think that was a, a really important part of, of your book. Um, did you know that going into that? Was that one of your theories or is that something that you kind of uncovered as you researched? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so when I approached this issue initially, or this project initially, I was very much steeped in this literature, this historiography about conservatism and the rise of the new right. And so the angle I initially was taking was that. Uh, basically, this is a product of this exploding religious right, this this emergent conservative majority. And there are still elements of the story uh, that kind of, I think, you know, gesture back to that. But I realized, you know, as I was pursuing this project that that the story was more complicated than that. And so one thing I really hammer home is the the bipartisan nature of a lot of these panics or uh, support for a lot of the measures that emerged in response to these isolated but high profile and very compelling acts, um, you know, kidnapping and, and murder. And so the carceral state is something that both political parties and, and you know, both um, major kind of political traditions in the U.S. were deeply invested in. And there's this clear sort of 
uh, tug of war that that both parties and, and people belonging to both major political traditions are engaged in. Uh, they're they're clearly trying to demonstrate that they are tougher on crime and on on this sort of crime um, or these sorts of offenses, which are so compelling and which so many people are uh, afraid of, fearful of, right? Because it speaks to. Uh, the sanctity and security of of this cherished institution, the, the family. Um, so it's not necessarily something I, I knew going in, but it clearly became something that I, I needed to address. And, you know, the more you look at these cases, you can see this clear connection between the names of, of you know, Adam Walsh or Jacob Wetterling or Megan Kanka um, or Polly Klass. These names served as this literal foundation for a lot of these federal laws. And, you know, similar things happen on the state level and local level. Amber Alert is another example. Um, so there's a, you know, a clear connection, a clear linkage between these earlier sorts of panics or the, these earlier incidents and, and these, I guess, more recent um, sorts of responses that uh, were undertaken on the federal level. And I, I feel like it's a really important thing to, to address, as you indicated, Elizabeth, because I think sex offense registries and this entire sort of system that we have, have constructed in order to address this particular threat is often something that gets ignored or there is at least a kind of tacit acknowledgement or a tacit uh, acceptance of of that system as uh, just and and right and necessary and you know i i argue in the book and many other activists and scholars have have done this before me and and after me but um you know this this is an ineffective and and grave kind of problem that that we need to sort of address because it doesn't it doesn't actually do what it purports to do and the scale of of this is is so massive that i think you know people kind of struggle to comprehend just how massive um it is and just how intense the the kind of deprivation of, of civil rights uh, and liberties are kind of associated with with uh, the sex offense legal regime, um, as Erica Miners and uh, Judith Levine call it, uh, that that is. So, I mean, the city of, of Jacksonville is a, it's approximately the size of uh, the sex offense registry um, in the U.S. And yeah, I think that's something that, that even carceral studies folks, um, people who are invested in this kind of work, um, struggle to, to deal with. And that's, you know, it's because it's a difficult issue. At the same time, it is something that I think needs to be addressed and kind of uh, focused on a, a bit more. Very briefly, because I know you expand on this like a lot on your book. Can you just explain who Alfred Regeneri is and like what he did to kind of build this up? Yeah, so Alfred Regnery oh, is sorry, I'm saying the name. No, wrong. it's a it's a weird name. Um, I I couldn't pronounce it for the longest time. Um, so he is the son or the scion of this um, publishing empire, this conservative publishing empire that's still active, and he's a really interesting character. And I, I really can't uh, go through you know all of the details um, that I uncovered. Uh, in uh, kind of writing about him, but he is a key figure in the Reagan administration's juvenile justice policy. Um, he becomes the head of the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, or OJJDP, and he, not unlike other individuals 
in the Reagan administration were uh, was tasked with um, kind of derailing the very agency that he was charged with leading. Um, you know, and this happens in other realms as well. But he quite clearly had this sort of racialized and classed understanding of juvenile crime. And I assume he still does. He's still alive and still writes for Breitbart and the like. Um, but he, he views uh, or viewed juvenile delinquents as kind of exclusively black or uh, Latinx, and he doesn't subscribe to this view, um, even though I think he overstates the extent to which other uh, his predecessors kind of subscribe to this view uh, that kind of the root causes of crime are are the most important sorts of factors in determining kind of who who commits certain offenses and uh, who ends up behind bars, essentially. I was going to ask a question about that. What is the root cause narrative? And what I couldn't, I know what it is, because I'm arguing with it about people on the internet all the time. But what is the root cause narrative? I wouldn't call it that. And why are so many conservatives opposed to it? Like, I don't understand. Like, I hear them saying it's stupid, it's dumb, it doesn't make any sense. But, like, why do they think that it's wrong? Yeah, so the root cause narrative is in part a creation of a lot of conservative thinkers, I would say. So they're kind of building up a straw person when they talk about liberals who embrace a kind of root cause narrative. And so in that sort of formulation, the root cause narrative or the root cause approach is tackling the the systems and structures that might enable or uh, facilitate certain kind of antisocial or problematic behaviors. Like poverty or lack of mental health care, stuff like that. Exactly. Yeah. Poverty, you know, uh, lack of access to, to health care or, um, you know, unequal education, that sort of thing. So Regnery is most certainly kind of an opponent of, of that view. However, I think he's arguing against uh, a kind of federal approach that never really existed. There's plenty of evidence to suggest that uh, even the at the height of the, the kind of liberal New Deal state, there's still this kind of punitive surveillance dimension to a lot of social programming uh, or social assistance programming. Um, and, you know, this is clear in Elizabeth Hinton's work and, and other folks' uh, work. You know, liberals, you know, before Regnery and after Regnery might be more willing to kind of speak to some of these structural issues, uh, but are nevertheless invested in the the buildup of the carceral state, kind of the uh, the professionalization of police, the creation of kind of a, a, a more modern carceral infrastructure, right? Um, so Regnery... I think is building up a straw person here, but he is arguing that instead of tackling any of those or even addressing the idea of poverty or, or hunger or educational inequality, we should basically just throw the book at folks. And uh, as you suggested, Elizabeth, this is something that persists, especially on the right. Today, I was watching CBS Mornings or whatever it's called now, and Tom Cotton was on uh, he was talking about his new book, and he was talking about the Paul Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi incident, and was saying basically what we need to do is throw the book at this individual. 
And the implication there is, well, we're not doing that. But I think anybody who you know has any sort of passing knowledge of the, the carceral state knows that, yeah, a lot of people are locked up and they're locked up for a long time. That's kind of uh, a distinctive feature of, of the American carceral state, just the, the length um, that so many people are behind bars or the lengths of their sentences. And so I think that that kind of Hostility to to root causes, or even just uh, you know any mention of inequality, I think is um, is a kind of recurring feature in a lot of this rhetoric. One of the things that struck me while reading Stranger Danger was just the way in which these kind of anti-gay, uh, anti-black, anti-poor people narratives get swept up you know somebody like tom cotton is playing a political game when he's he's saying that and and he knows better he's able to evaluate the evidence and and make his own call based on educated uh reasons but one of the things that kept striking me is the way that this narrative was echoed in so many different authors you know um and by so many different authors in the kind of naturalistic way that it fit into kind of the American cultural narrative of how bad things happen. And so I'm really curious around whether you feel like that, uh, whether there's more skepticism around that narrative today than there might have been in the era that of the, the 70s and 80s, um, or if it's it's kind of about the same, or if there's kind of a partisanship to that skepticism, which I suspect there might actually not be just different kinds of uh, narratives that we kind of unquestioningly accept, but that's my own personal nonsense. I, I would like to hear your informed nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I'm a pessimist, and so I don't think that all that much has changed. And you do see uh, moments that might inspire some hope. So 2020, for instance, uh, for all of the the awful um, awfulness of that period, nevertheless kind of triggered this major, major um, uprising, right? This clear sort of declaration um, that so many people sort of subscribed to or uh, endorsed that the status quo when it comes to policing and punishment isn't good enough or it's it's something that needs to be um, rectified. A lot of that, I think, was um, either co-opted or just kind of suppressed. And, you know, you see that through various laws uh, that, you know, prohibit or prevent people from organizing and, and, you know, expressing their discontent with the carceral state or the police state. Um, or you see that just through kind of the the rhetoric of people like Tom Cotton that has a clear sort of chilling effect on on people's attempts to you know express their discontent again. So I think though in the past, yeah, I mean really since 2020, you see so many uh, similarities between what's happening today and say the 1970s in the discourse on crime in that people are unwilling or unable to really think more deeply about what causes um, 
whatever you want to call it, you know, antisocial behavior or uh, discord, um, you know, uh, disruptions, um, disorder, chaos. Essentially, there it, it has kind of sorted, as you suggested, Karen. It has sorted into kind of, I guess, partisan camps in a way. Um, in that, you know, one side bl- blames the other for for crime, and you see this. I mean, most obviously with conservatives kind of blaming liberals, um, but you also see it with liberals kind of blaming conservatives and saying, well, it's actually a red state murder problem, or this is something that happens in in red states more so than than blue states, um, which you know might be true, but also it's it commits the same sort of offense that we're talking about here, which is an unwillingness to say, well, you know, maybe there's a reason why Mississippi and Alabama and Oklahoma, you know, see so much of this sort of harm taking place. Um, it's because, you know, people are poor, people have access to guns, yada, 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 right? You know, not to kind of engage in both sidesism, but I think that there, that is important because it, it it's a similar sort of obfuscation, a similar sort of unwillingness to, to grapple with these these uh, structures and systems. So, yeah, I, I see so many similarities um, between what people are saying now, uh, what they're not saying now, and and what they said in the '70s with you know with certain sorts of harms being perpetrated in uh, and in the '90s. I mean, the, the same sort of um, fear of crime was omnipresent in the '90s, and the response was carceral. And it seems like the same thing's happening now. And the only viable response is carceral. Um, so, you know. If you're, you know, preventing any sort of investigation of, of other sorts of potential solutions, you know, that's um, that's a that's a problem. Um, and I think, you know, there are so many factors behind that. Um, whether it's kind of the the outsized sort of or uh, exaggerated kind of embrace of law enforcement, or kind of adulation of law enforcement, or uh, military forces and the like, you know, I think, and and the kind of clear sort of lobbying. Uh, power that those institutions have, um, you know, that that prevents people from taking a, uh, alternative routes, um, and it's very disheartening. But um, but there are people who are agitating for for different sorts of solutions, um, and and there are kind of concrete uh, results uh, that they've kind of uh, achieved. So you know, m- there is some cause for hope, uh, but but I'm I'm a pessimist again. Yeah, I'm one of the things that struck me while reading this was the way in which the concepts of like an innocent person who's all good and the uh, perpetrator who is all bad uh, kind of came up in this very simple narrative in all of these. And, you know, even while reading what you had written, I felt myself like tight around fear, you know, and in, in, in just confronting how horrible this kind of experience is and thinking through my own kind of perspectives around, particularly around sex crimes and the way that we talk as a country about rape where you know we all think that all rapists should you know have all sorts of horrible things happen to them but somebody like Brett Kavanaugh is a victim of being confronted you know um uh by an allegation and so it's 
it just really sh- struck me the way that this this fantasy of all good versus all bad kind of just fits so simply into a narrative for Americans. And, and if there's something unique to American culture that 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 resonates so strongly. Yeah, I don't I think we are a uniquely kind of Manichaean culture in that we we look for and I'm speaking very generally here, but we look for very simple narratives for the good versus the bad. Um, and yeah, any, any sort of nuance is often understood as treason or, um, you know, is, is beyond the pale in some way. And so, you know, really complex issues like sexual harm, sexual violence, uh, they, they don't, you know, fit very neatly into these categories. And that's not to suggest that, you know, there aren't people who perpetrate such harm and that's a bad thing, but, um, you know, there are class dimensions to this. There are other sorts of dimensions to this. And we have, I think, established that the regime, the, the system that we've constructed to address this is just not working because sexual harm persists. It's a major problem, but the ways in which we talk about it are inadequate. The, you know, and that's not to say that people aren't talking about it in maybe the right ways or they're looking for responses that are not only empathetic, but just more reasonable, right? Um, because yeah, the, the, as I indicated earlier, this, sex offense registry just doesn't work. Um, locking people up doesn't work. And we do that a lot because I think, as you indicated, Karen, there's this effort to localize the causes or localize um, violence in individuals rather than, again, the the broader sorts of structures and systems that we're kind of talking about here. Um, you know, if you wanted to get serious about this, you would maybe talk about misogyny and homophobia and yeah whiteness and the ways in which that kind of enables people to 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 do certain things talking about Brett Kavanaugh you know and get away with them you know class class identity um and the like um or or class status I should say so the the carceral state the police state don't really reckon with those things they they more or less kind of um just yeah, I mean the the hammer and the nail sort of thing, right? Um, you know, every every problem is a nail to to a hammer. Um, so I think that that again kind of reflects this broader cultural uh, tendency just to to fit things into um, a kind of dichotomy or or a binary, and things are not that simple. Um, that's not to suggest that other nations other cultures don't kind of engage in the same sort of thing but just it's so pronounced um i think in the u.s and and the scale of of the carceral state the scale of um the sex offense legal regime um and the just the frequency of of sexual harm and other types of harm that you see in in um, in the states i think maybe all speak to something exceptional about about the u.s and it's not good not to totally nerd out, but that reminded me of a quotation from uh, Sinclair, Sinclair Lewis, and it can't happen here. Yeah. And he wrote, there's no country in the world more hysterical or more obsequious than America. And he said that in 1935. And I just remember like, oh, could have said that now. But my, my next question was about a systemic issue. 
And it was about how uh, Regnery knew that most uh, child kidnappings were parental kidnappings, but he kind of ignored it. And he wrote in the book that you, you think it was to uphold the Reagan administration's family values things that you don't want to say anything against the family. So you don't want to admit that there's so much harm being done within the family. And when I was reading that, I just made a note like, is this patriarchy protecting itself? You know, are there so many of these like, because I assume sometimes mothers kidnap their kids, but you look at the modern like men's rights movement, like Andrew Tate incels, all of the stuff goes back. You go back about 15 years and it started out as like father's rights, parental rights, divorce, custody. And is it kind of like, we don't want to talk about the fact that most of the kids who get kidnapped are kidnapped by their fathers because that's like a threat to patriarchy. And I guess that is the Reagan administration family values kind of thing. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I guess more generally, it's, uh, I think, a product of this unwillingness to, to really kind of interrogate violence within the family um that's kind of a bridge too far it's it's just beyond the pale right um you know violence does exist it happens a lot but it's usually not uh perpetrated by by strangers um and you know i think not only is kind of domestic violence so common in the u.s it's so underreported is it is something it's almost you know um the third rail in a way right if you if you actually wanted to to deal with violence you would kind of get serious about uh, the ways in which yeah a heteropatriarchal family uh, kind of sustains that sort of violence or almost encourages it in a way um so this is i think just just a product of that um or maybe kind of an extreme example because yes it is almost Almost exclusively, I want to say, even though it's really difficult to kind of quantify these sorts of phenomena, but men, fathers are, are far more likely to, to kidnap uh, children. But this, this myth, you know, this um, fantastical, not fantastical myth, but this myth of stranger kidnapping, I think is just kind of comforting in, in a way, even though it's obviously so disheartening, um, it enables people to think, okay, it's actually the bad people outside of my house. They are the ones who are trying to break up my family, to, to steal my, my beautiful child, when that's just not the, the nature of the, the offense at all. And parental kidnapping, yeah, for Regnery, for so many people, is kind of a strange problem in that they, they don't know how to reckon with it, and they just don't really acknowledge it, even when they say, yeah, you know, stranger kidnappings are far less likely to happen in um, in the U.S. than are stranger kidnappings or uh, runaways or, or what have you. Yet there's this kind of sense that stranger kidnappings are, I, I guess, uh, more threatening or kind of more terrifying. In a sense, I get that. But, you know, if it's such a rare occurrence, right, um, you know, why why focus on that rather than the statistically more significant threat um, that actually kind of, I think, speaks to the the structural issues that we're, we're kind of um, addressing here. Yeah, it's funny. So I'm uh, a clinical psych doctoral student right now. And so I'm, of course, like want to reflect on that, that element of like the psychology of why is it easier to imagine a much worse experience that happens outside of your family, then confront the the kind of 
I mean, the types of families that these happen in tend to have intergenerational traumas. And so that kind of cycle of perpetuation of violence and then the, also the the bad people outside are going to harm my kids. So I have to tolerate what's going on in my family. I have to close rank with my family. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it really creates almost a, a powder keg for should something go wrong in a family that there isn't any actual help because it creates the mentality that that family is more important than outside that the the stranger danger you know that strangers are so much more harmful than family members and so it's a terrible place to get cheeky but elizabeth and i are, are elder millennials, exennials. I feel like our generation talks so much about like, imagine what would have happened if our parents had gone to therapy, you know, <laughs> just kind of the ways that, that we turn through what our parents haven't dealt with in our interactions with them. You know, I'm sure that this is also limited to who we have chosen to surround ourselves with, that this is the experience that I've had. I don't think that all people the same age as me have that same conversation. But I, I'm so curious about whether those numbers might shift over time because of this kind of broadened acceptance of uh, talking about what goes on in families, a mental health professional, or even just kind of in public. Yeah, I again, I'm a pessimist. So I, I feel like without more scaffolding, whether it's, you know, the, the sorts of supports that that I think we've kind of all been talking about here, uh, those that that I mean I don't want to call it a privilege, but you know this this ability to to seek help to, to you know to talk to to a professional that will remain um, the province of of the wealthy, um, and you know that's not to say that harm doesn't happen in those those places. It most certainly does. Uh, but you know there is a class dimension to to this, and um, so so I think that you know I wish everyone would go to therapy, but uh, it's 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 not given our system. Um, you know it's just not going to happen unless uh, there's a, a broader sort of you know <laughs> revolution, I guess. You know uh, that that enables people to seek out the the help that they need, not just um, healthcare generally, but you know mental healthcare uh, specifically. Uh, but I think something you were saying, Karen, really kind of resonated with me in that you were um, in in your discussion of of the family, and I think it it's increasingly sort of atomized nature in the late twentieth century. You know, as the full effects of suburbanization, uh, neoliberalization, austerity uh, really kind of took hold. You saw. Um, and you continue to see just people completely alienated uh, from the society in which they live. You know, there are no walkable spaces. Uh, there's no kind of social infrastructure. Um, you know, you're you're in your car all the time. You're going to a job that you hate. And then when you come home, you're surrounded by the same people. And that that is a powder keg in a sense. You know, it, you know, obviously uh, most people maybe um, – don't commit, you know, domestic violence. But uh, if you wanted to create the conditions uh, for that to happen, that's kind of one way to do it, right? Um, just kind of, you know, ensure that people are totally estranged from from the society in which they live. They're not accountable to to many people, right? And and the the sort of the system that you've constructed to address that, uh, the 
kind of carceral punitive system um, that is violent in its own way, and you know that's that's one reason why you see you know uh, domestic violence rates among cops uh, you know as high as they actually are uh, because they're built to do one thing, right? So yeah, I think the not you know this is obviously not a problem that that emerged in the the late twentieth century, but you know since we're talking about that period um you know i think that we've built a society that that enables that to happen um more than it should or you know um yeah i think it is safe to say that going to therapy is a privilege okay yeah i didn't want to say yeah <laughs> sorry i'm i'm digesting everything you said but that was something i was like no, I think that's fair but i do think there is also kind of a, a cultural shift mm-hmm. with at least like pop culture figures uh, with Oprah opening up and, and moving on from there, that people are, again, public figures, I think, are talking more about the conditions that they grew up in and and their homes and, and getting some of those narratives out. I don't think that it is uh, on a level of major cultural shift, uh, the kind of revolutionary changes that we would need I mean, even if we we shift the idea of where violence tends to originate, it won't shift the causes of it until those causes are addressed. But even as I'm saying this, it's like as we have an ongoing kind of sex crime panic conspiracy theory that nearly half the country endorses at least some belief in. So, (laughs) you know, even as I'm talking, I'm like, you know what? Back to pessimism. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In your book, you mentioned um, the free range uh, kids movement. And I think that's very interesting. Um, Like as a parent, I think I take a more like moderate approach to it. And I think, um, you know, like maybe when you're a little older, go with a friend, which is always like my role, like safety numbers and that kind of thing. Um, But I think it's interesting, um, like kind of the critiques around it and like who can and who can't be a free range parent. Um, in what neighborhood and what race and stuff like that. And, um, I found that all, that all really interesting. I joined, um, a free range parent Facebook group. And what I thought was interesting was that there was an array of people across the political spectrum there. And the most contentious issue (laughs) right now is like whether or not you should take parenting advice from Jordan Peterson. (laughs) (laughs) So I think Karen, I sent you a screenshot or two of that, but, um, I wanted to ask a question. You might you might not know the answer. Maybe no one knows the answer. But has any child ever been found by an Amber Alert? Yes, but they almost exclusive. So if you, uh, I was on a dissertation committee. Um, there's a person who studies Amber Alerts kind of very very intently. Um, and yes, people have been found, uh, but the the very kind of nature of the Amber Alert is seeks to prioritize stranger abduction. And I think I want to say almost all, if not all, of the children recovered were abducted by parents or acquaintances. And so that's... No, I meant like, has anyone... I know that most of the kids are found, but were they found because someone was alerted? Uh, that's really difficult to yeah ascertain. Yeah, yeah. Because like I, I get them all the time. And then, you know... 
10 hours later, it's like they yeah. were found. Where's <laughs> yeah. the dad? Were they found? It was whatever. Um, but I'm just like wondering, like, did the police find them? Did the family figure it out? Or did someone see that on their phone and was like, oh, let me go look for them? I, that's, that's what I'm wondering. Like, do the alerts actually cause citizen action to find kids? Maybe no one knows the answer to that, but that's that's something I'm always curious yeah, about. Yeah, it's kind of tough to assign causative value, I guess. But no, so I saw a great TikTok or a video of this, you know, group of young men who simultaneously receive an amber alert on their phone and they spring into action you know they all run to their car uh, and they you know the joke is of course that this is not what happens and most people just kind of ignore uh, such alerts um, but they kind of hinge on this sort of vigilante spirit that I think you see in a lot of um, this uh, kind of surrounding this entire issue um, but whether whether or not someone has um, kind of actually deputized themselves and gone out and found uh, that child, I don't I don't know. I I would I would venture to say it's it's very unlikely. Uh, and oftentimes it's the parents uh, or the, uh, the the abductor who says, "Oh well, the jig is up. You know, I better I better turn um, turn myself in." You know. Or um, I think there are some instances in which the, that actually precipitates a murder because folks say, well, I should, you know, the jig is up. I need to kill my child and perhaps myself. Yeah, I, I guess someone should. I mean, that's 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 frightening. I didn't think of that part, adding the Kate Mann um, book onto there about, you know, patriarchy and filicide and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I guess more research is needed. Totally, Karen, yeah. Karen did you have more questions? Uh, I'm also still just kind of sitting with the weight of <laughs> that yeah. last bit. So, uh, no, I, I don't know that I, I have more questions right now. And, and maybe that that's a cheerful note we can wrap up <laughs> did, on unless you have did you, more to add. Yeah, do you have Sorry, I ruined, you have, I ruined no, everything. No, you didn't ruin anything. No, no, that's why we brought you on to, to talk about this. I know this is heavy. These are heavy subjects. Um, yeah, did you want to add anything on this topic and or do you want to talk about any other projects? Um, not really. I mean, I'm working on a book about Ryan White uh, and the AIDS crisis, so I'm making my way through through that. Um, another cheery, cheery topic. Um, I'm clearly drawn to these very, um, very sunny topics, but, but important um, though. Yes, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, not many people have kind of investigated uh, the the politics of innocence uh, in the AIDS crisis. There's a profusion of scholarship on on AIDS right now, which is really great. Uh, but um, this is kind of one one issue that that I, I feel like um, I, I really wanted to to address, and it's another sort of issue from my childhood. You know, Ryan White um, loomed large, and um, I think informed a lot of the fears and anxieties I had about about AIDS and, um, you know, that, that continues to kind of shape obviously my professional life and, and in some ways my personal life. So, um, and I feel like that is something that many other people, um, have experienced as well. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, where can people find you online? So on Twitter, if Twitter still exists by the time this, uh, airs, uh, so my handle is PM Renfro. R-E-N-F-R-O. And you can find out more about me on the Florida State University Department of History website um, on the faculty 
site. And I don't have a personal website, and uh, I'm I'm kind of happy about that. So, uh, but yeah, those are, good, good those are the two main two main places where you can find me. You can find me on Twitter at Miss Cherry Pie P I like the number pie. And you can find me on Twitter at uh, Karen. And uh, if I'm still there, we'll, we'll all see if academic Twitter moves all entirely to Mastodon. <laughs> yes, Mastodon, TikTok, all that good stuff. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you all. You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, where we tackle political arubarus from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you'd like to support us, you can find us on patreon.com slash feministcoffeehour, because like icon Shirley Chisholm, we remain unbought and unbossed. You can support us non-financially by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or sharing about us on social media so that other people can find us. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth.